Osiris. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupitan. This week on the show, my conversation with a three-time Grammy Award-winning Roots and Roll poet and revered performer who has been releasing fearless, roguish records for nearly four decades and along the way has accidentally become one of the founding fathers of the thriving Americana music movement, Steve Earle. Let's stop for a second. Can we admit we don't really know what Americana music really is or what it really means? Ask someone like me in California and I'd say it's a nonsense genre like indie rock or acid jazz or roots pop. Yet, as a songwriter and band leader who refuses to be stuck in one lane and can't really imagine my music ever being on pop radio, I need this thing to exist. I need the Americana scene and the festivals and the radio stations that play it. I need them to exist. I see it as a friendly tent where folk music and rock and roll and soul and blues can lovingly wrestle together and make a new form of unslick intellectual American country music for people who maybe don't usually vote red or don't drive or write songs about pickup trucks or shop at Dollar General. Does that make sense? Yeah, I didn't think so either. Sometimes the music that you're making right now, you don't know how to describe it. And that's kind of where Steve Earle fits too. There's a new lineup of heroes that you can worship on a different type of altar. Maybe it's where Lucinda Williams and John Prine and Richard Thompson and Bela Fleck live. And maybe even Ray Charles and Johnny Cash and Springsteen and Petty. You know, Steve Earle could be considered the patron saint of this left-of-the-limelight, genre-curious world that Americana has created. Though if I asked him, he probably would say he didn't belong anywhere. Growing up an unathletic baseball crazy son of an air traffic controller in San Antonio, Steve Earle has never quite checked any box or stayed in any lane on the way to his almost mainstream success. I was lucky enough to catch him on his tour bus in a steamy parking lot in Kentucky, and I'm sorry for the noisy air conditioner, but man, it was hot outside. You know, despite his rebel streak, he said humbly that he's just happy to never have to pay for a record, but the truth is, he's a more complicated artist than that. He's been both courted, championed, and then spurned by the major labels in his country rock guitar town youth in the 80s. Always a bit too edgy and unpredictable and outspoken to fit into the slick Nashville cash cow stable in the 90s, 
and then he nearly killed himself with drugs and touring and many wild love affairs in the following decades, a tangle of lives and learning that it spilled into his gruff, expertly arranged classics. And believe me, if you don't know Steve Earle, you've heard these songs. Think about The Devil's Right Hand. Can you imagine writing a song that's been covered by Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings and Bob Seger? These are songs that feel like they're part of the American framework. They're just in your radio and in your ears your whole life. But the thing that most inspires me about Earl's body of work is his restlessness, his endless curiosity. You can tell just by sitting next to him in his pile of cowboy boots on his bus, he's got way too much to say about the death penalty, finding the right woman to write the right love song about. He's made bluegrass records, he's made hard rock and roll records, and albums challenging the government and God, and records honoring Towns Van Sant, who he named his talented songwriter son Justin Towns Earl after, and maybe his most recent opus is his most impressive yet. He recorded his favorite Guy Clark tracks in a gorgeous, lived-in detail that you can't stop listening to. And unlike many elder statesmen who settle into casino gigs or rare Opry appearances once their beards have gone gray, Steve is still slinging it on the road with the rest of us, sweating into his bandanas each night in dark nightclubs and flinging wordy truth bombs at sweaty festivals. Then out of nowhere, he collaborates with lady singer-songwriters like Sean Colvin and makes crazy duet albums. And he shows up in stage plays in New York and gritty TV dramas like The Wire, and he keeps radio DJs and record executives on their toes. Unlike most hard-living salty dog songwriters like his hero Tom Van Sant, Steve somehow made it through the fire and got stronger on the other side. I wish we could have talked longer, to be honest, but I was lucky to be able to catch him before his festival set, and he was pretty deep into watching the rambunctious Yankee and Red Sox battle in London. Could we have talked about baseball for the entire podcast? Probably, but uh, I'm glad we did talk about some of his classic songs and how they came to be, and you know what? At the very end, he tells me, because he didn't die like the rest of those folks, he got older and he got better, and damn, I'm glad he did. So here he is now, Steve Earle. That old time feeling goes sneaking down the hall Like a low-grade cat in weather Here we are. I never give up on the Yankees when they're seven runs down. So, the, the Red Sox are really good. They've been having a hard time this year, but they're gonna they're they're catching up really fast. So. so here we are in the parking lot at Rompfest. Can you introduce yourself to the radio audience? I'm Steve Earl, and um, this is a bluegrass festival, largely in um, Owensboro, Kentucky, that we're at today. It's nice being in the air conditioning because it's pretty brutal out there. Yeah, right it's now. pretty hot. It's pretty hot. Yeah, summer finally showed up. It's been bizarre. The weather's yeah. been so different that it's supposed yeah. to be almost everywhere I've been. Yeah. You grew up a Yankee fan, huh? Yeah, no baseball in Texas till 62. Yeah. You know, my granddad... The Colt 45 is when they came in? They, that's 62 when they yeah. arrived, and they become the Astros when yeah. when NASA moves to yeah. to Houston, So, which is the next year. San Antonio never had a baseball team. Right? The what? San Antonio never had a team, right? Had teams, but in the minor league teams. Yeah. There's always been a minor league yeah. team. It's it's it's, it's l- traditionally mostly it's been, um, I believe it's Dodgers Double A ball. Oh really? Yeah, San Antonio Mission. It's been there for a long time. Um, 
I've become an adopted Dodger fan since yeah. I've been in L.A. about 11 years. Yeah, well, I could see that. It's a this great, has got to be the year. It's a great man. stadium, and the best hot dog, you know, in baseball is yeah. a Dodger stadium. cannot uh, be Dodger a Dodger dog. dog. You can't beat it. There's not, 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 not. When's the last time you went to a game? At anywhere. Do- oh, anywhere? Um, Yankee Stadium, um, when was it? it was about... 10 days ago, something like that, 11 days ago, and I'm going to go again on the 21st, and that'll be the last regular season game I'll see this year. I miss, I don't get to see a shitload of games because I'm touring in the summertime, so. Yeah. So I just go, I buy, I go on StubHub, and it's not worth it for me to have season tickets, so I, I get to go to so few games. I've been to three this year, I think. Did you play and, when you were growing up? No, I didn't. I, I was the most unathletic person in my family, and uh you know, I'm not. It's weird. I don't know why. Well, it was my granddad. My granddad. Uh, I was six in 1961. My grandfather, like, mustered out of the army in New York City anyway. So he came back a Yankees fan when he came back to run the family hard- hardware store, kicking and screaming when his stepfather died. But um, you were either a Yankees fan or a Dodgers fan because yeah. that's who you got on television. Yeah, yeah. Because there were only two stadiums that were set up for teams. So the game of the week was either. The New York Yankees, you yeah. know, hosting somebody, or or, or the, the LA Dodgers hosting, somebody. and I could have been a Dodgers fan just based on baseball. That was Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax on the same pitching staff, yeah. and you know, it would have been really easy to be a to be a Dodgers fan. My dad didn't talk to me for about three days when I admitted to him that I was rooting for the Red Sox when they finally won in '04. And then when Johnny Damon hit that home run, I was like, "Come right. on, man! Like this is yeah. this is fun." And he's yeah. like, "How could you say that?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I don't hate the Red Sox. It's the greatest rivalry. But I. But I don't. You know. But you have to be sensitive to people's pain when they follow a team like that, and that's all there is to it. So you grew up mostly in Texas, right in San Antonio area. Yeah. Well, yeah. You remember what the first concert that you remember seeing when you were yeah, a kid? Yeah, Beatles and and Houston. Coliseum. That was the first concert you went to? Yeah, the first, you know, rock concert yeah. I went to. I don't think pretty I good one. saw any kind of... Before that, I think I might have seen, you know, um, somebody at a rodeo or something, but I can't remember. I mean, for, I mean, for so many people, the the Beatles on, like, you know, Ed Sullivan was, like, this transformational it moment. Was, was It was it for you, too? It absolutely was for me, because I was an Elvis guy, you know, but I kind of missed... You know, I mean, for me, Elvis was the movies, you know, yeah. and, and I saw him on the Ed Sullivan show when he got out of the Army, and I saw all the movies because they were, they were replaying all the time by that time, and, and um, I was very interested in music. I, my uncle's records, I had an uncle five years older than me, that my mom's brother, um, who, you know, I paid a lot of attention to what he did because he was closer to my age. And, and you know he had he he bought records so he had things like the Purple People either and he had right. the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and right. you know and then um, and he had Elvis records but he was only he was a little older than me so he wasn't quite as interested in Elvis and he was just sort of you know still preteen and then just as he's becoming a teenager the Beatles happen so yeah. yeah he's he's thirteen and and um, or fourteen and I'm nine yeah. And um, he calls me and says, he lives in Jacksonville, Texas, and he says, you got to watch the Ed Sullivan show. We usually did anyway. But um, I'd heard about him, you know, mostly from him. Yeah. And I saw the Beatles, and it was all over. It was like from that point on, it became... And now, at the same time, I had uh, another uncle who was the best nine-finger piano player in Northeast Texas, and that's where all the Hank Williams and Bob Wills and... What happened Johnny to his Cash other finger? Set. 
got pulled off on the bike. His wedding ring got caught on the conveyor belt at a charcoal plant he was working in. Shit. And uh, they couldn't find it, so it ended up in a bag of charcoal. Somebody got some extra meat. (laughs) On the grill. Yeah. Wait, one of those uncles you ran away from home with? Is that that right? No, I didn't run away from home with my uncle. Those those stories get compressed together. (laughs) I ran away from home a lot. I left home. The the uncle that's five years older than me, when I left home for good, he was living in Houston by that time. So I went over and just showed up and crashed at his place in Houston when I first got there. And uh, I just, uh, you know, I, I got my own place pretty quickly after that. But I, I did, you know, kind of follow him over there. Do you remember the first song you wrote? Uh, yeah, it was um, probably had a girl's name title <laughs> for a title, something like that. You know, so. I mean, I think it was called Elaine. When, yeah. when you are a certain age in life and you've had seven marriages, right? At a certain point, is there an inkwell that is so deep to, to, to dip into for new songs that it becomes a combination of, of many loves and many, uh, you know, sort of inspirations? Or is it, is it still sort of that, that one person that sparks a new song? I just think some girls are better for songs than others. <laughs> I don't know, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no, you know, perfectly good girls don't get any songs and, and people that I didn't love any less don't get any songs and <laughs> it's not what's poetic is what's poetic I think the the people don't give, give a fuck what happens to you they care about what happens to you that they can relate to right. and that really is the, I, mean, I realized that a long time ago and so that's the stuff I the other stuff for the most part I don't bother to write yeah. you know so I have some specific reason for it to exist and a narrative for an album or something I just I just got into that song Valentine's Day right. of yours on uh, the I Feel All Right record '96, you know, and it's it's so both romantic but also like sort of self-aware, you know, about sort of the idea of look Valentine's Day is this sort of manufactured right holiday, but every day sort of even thinking of you is like Valentine's Day right. to you, you know. I was just saving my ass because I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't have a driver's license, so I couldn't go out and get anything, <laughs> and I didn't want to take a chance. Yeah, you couldn't get the flowers, uh, didn't get the card, it's I like... Get, yeah, so yeah. I just, uh, I literally wrote it uh, in a panic on February 13th. As a gift for Valentine's Day? Yeah, for Valentine, that's, what it, that's why I wrote it. Did it work? Yeah, for a while. <laughs> well, at a certain point, it's about, like, the idea of love in the grand sense, maybe, you know? It is, but the fact of the matter is, usually you're trying to, you know, you're, you're dealing with, when it gets real is when you're dealing with something that actually happened to you. So yeah. if you're not willing to give up something, then, you know, people that are guarded and people that, that are private usually, you know. there I know some people that are very private in every other way except what they write, and the writing's the only outlet. Guy was a lot like that, yeah. you know, but... Um, um, I'm kind of everything sort of comes out of me whether I'm talking or writing or whatever. But your newest record about you know guy, it, it's it's so personal even though it's not your songs per se, but it feels so lived in for me. I you. know the songs really, yeah. and I stuck to songs I knew really well for the most part. I learned, I learned a couple of songs, but most of it's songs I've known for decades, and you know, so I'm on that kind of intimate basis with them. So it makes that a lot more believable. If, if he was here right now. Which one of the songs would you play for him? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, the guy songs on this yeah. record? I don't know. And what I'm proudest of is L.A. Freeway. Yeah. Um, he liked my version of The Last Gunfire Battle. He heard that, because yeah. I recorded that years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. And we couldn't. We tried to re-record it for this record, and we couldn't beat it, so we just released the version I recorded 20 years ago. Yeah. There's There's that feeling sometimes when you're recording that, like there's a gun to your head almost you know do you, is it do you feel like you can't necessarily get it right or you don't appreciate what you did until many years later or do you feel sometimes in the moment that you never I've always it? been pretty pragmatic about that in the sense that I think there's they're called records for a reason all they are is a record of a given performance on a given day and I'm really good at letting it go that's good you know I don't ever want it back I, I mean it's I, can, I have the option to record something again if I want to, as yeah. long as it's been five years, you know, um, from when I originally recorded it for something somebody else paid for it. Um, yeah. At this point, I'm trying to get through the rest of my life without ever having to pay for a record. <laughs> so that's because that's I haven't had to pay for one so far, so I just kind of don't want to. Are you doing a record in conjunction with a public theater project? Did well, I hear about I'm going to do a record that hopefully will sell at the shows. There's a there's, um, and then I'm gonna do Nick another record that involves some of the same songs. They'll just be my next record. Uh, Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, who are a couple, they do what they call, it's, you know, documentary theater basically. They interviewed um, the survivors, which means the two guys that were there that didn't die, and the families of these people that were killed in, um, in a in a coal mine called Upper Big Branch in West Virginia. Yeah. You know, ten years ago, belonged to that guy Don Blankenship, who yeah. the the gentleman you saw who ran for the Senate in in, in West Virginia and did win. Um, it um, the songs are it was pitched around town as a piece that they 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 did. We went to West Virginia. They interviewed these folks. It's their words, and then I wrote songs that sort of move the narrative along. It's not a musical. It's a play with. With, um, with with songs and um, it goes up at the public theater in February and I'm going to actually be in it performing you know playing those songs and then I'm going to make a, another there'll be a record uh, made even before that that'll be those, those songs plus some other songs that were inspired by those trips to West Virginia that'll be uh, more electric than the versions that I'll perform in the show and you'll be this band and um, um the play's called Coal Country. Mm. Our record's called Ghosts of West Virginia. I believe mm. that's what I'm going to call it. That's what I'm planning on calling it now. Mm. And uh, there'll probably be a, a EP with the the acoustic versions that, that I perform, like as I perform them in the show as well. Because you've been in, you know, The Wire and different things like that where the camera is like a different gaze than like an audience like playing music. Do you feel like your spirit as an actor versus a, a performer playing music is a different persona or do you feel like it's always you i think it's way easier to perform for a live audience for me because i've done way more of it yeah uh, but like but muscle. but as an actor and you know uh, you know on a stage in new york that's a terrifying thing to me I, the closest i came to it was was a uh, richard maxwell play i was in and i was mainly a narrator and i was on book until the very end and i had this long hairy 20 minute monologue and it was it was the most frightening thing i've ever done and the First night I walk out, Lois Smith is sitting right across from me. And yeah. it's, it's a you know, it's like a you know seventy seat theater. You know, yeah. so um, you know that stuff's scary. But but um, 
the camera's not what's important when you're when you're when you're trying to be pretend to be somebody else in a film or television. What's important is that you understand that there is an audience on the yeah. other side of that camera. And all that camera is is yeah. the lens. It's just the eye. And yeah. you, you know, the, the the person that you're playing to is well on the other side of that. The and, uh, I was gonna ask you about about being scared. You know, there's a this song that I love of yours called Meet Me in the Alleyway, um, off of I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive about right. dancing with the devil at the end of the line and, you know, you better come running because the spirits won't wait. Is there a point where you felt most terrified in your life? Well, there's been a lot, there's been some terrifying moments. I mean, I don't, you know. Um, and how did you get through? Like, what is the way to get through? At one time, drugs, but yeah. I can't do that anymore, you know. Yeah. Getting sober was pretty terrifying. Um, you know, I don't put myself in as many dangerous situations now that I'm not high, so... Um, you know, there's just not... What I do, nobody dies. Yeah. You know, so I try to try to keep that in perspective. Like, at the end of the day, whether it's good or whether it's bad, nobody's going to die because if <laughs> I don't do my job well. Yeah. You know? And there are people that go out and do jobs every day that, that people's yeah. lives are at stake. So so I just try to keep it in perspective. It is important. Art's important. Yeah. But it isn't life or death. And, and I just try to keep that in perspective. And... and uh, Usually things turn out all right. I mean, where is the place for the artist right now in this sort of super divided political time? Because it's like you've had causes that you care about, the death penalty, the environment. Yeah, but, you know, it's but like, the deal is... How do you make a difference right now? Like, how do you like think well, we can make a difference? Well, I don't know. If you do what you can do, what I'm going to do, what I've chosen to do is to make a record that isn't the preaching to the choir record that I've made in the past. I'm making a record that gives a voice to... You know, it speaks to, and hopefully, if I do it prop- properly for people that maybe didn't vote the way that I did, and it doesn't yeah. have to be that way. I just want them, you know, I want I want people to know that I listen to, yeah. and that's that's mainly what this record. Because I think a lot of the 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 angst feels like people are not being understood or not being listened to, yeah. and they're being talked down to. Absolutely, right? there's, there's a lot. I mean, a lot of my friends think that the way. They're going to change what's happened to us the last several years. And it is dangerous. This guy's dangerous, and he's dismantling our democracy. But they think the way they're going to change it is to call people stupid. And, and, and if you think that everybody that voted for Donald Trump is stupid, you know, then we're going to get him again. If you think that everybody that voted for Donald Trump's mean, then we're going to get him again. There's mean people. There's stupid people. And some probably more of them voted than, than not. But even those people are people. So it's just one of those yeah. things. They're part of the deal. It's a democracy, and you have to have some trust in it, and you have to accept, yeah. you know. Um, you know That's why some people are afraid of impeachment. I think he deserves to be impeached, but I also do believe that there will be a reaction that's potentially dangerous if yeah. they attempt to impeach him. So I understand that that fear is real. Yeah. So my deal is I just want to make sure that I can contribute to making people not afraid mm. to do something different than they did last time that maybe they maybe they went in the booth and they just you know maybe they won't even admit that they voted for him there's, I think there's lots of people that, that voted for him that, that'll swear to you that they didn't <laughs> you know or, or they, they don't want to talk about it well um, here we go or just because they didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton yeah. that, that, that I think that happened you know yeah. and and um, um do you think we're going to have a woman, a woman president coming up? Yeah, I think I think it's going to happen soon. Um, 
Nobody. I didn't believe that we would ever see an African American president of the United States in my lifetime. Yeah. So it, all bets are off now. You know, we've had we've had a African American president who uh, I thought was pretty pretty good president. He's not my guy in the sense that that he might as well have been. You know, it's kind of middle of the road. I mean, like politically, there's no, there's no different than no different than than. Bill Clinton when it yeah. got right down to it and Bill Clinton might as well have been a Republican so <laughs> you know I don't in a lot of ways that are important to me but I do but, he, but he's not but they weren't Republicans there they, does make a difference and you know I, I've never made the mistake of believing this was uh, anything but a right of center center country that's what it is and you know I'm a, I'm a left of a well left of center guy and a right of center country and I've always accepted that and I don't think it's because... Were your folks conservative in Texas? No. No, my parents were always Democrats. And, you know, my dad was air traffic controller, worked for the government. You know, he probably um, accepted that the Vietnam War was supposed to happen and that we were doing it for the right reasons until it went on for several years. And then he was trying talking to me about going to Canada because I was getting older. So he, so he had a he had a malleable mind about he things. did he absolutely did yeah he absolutely did that that song Randall Knife uh, which is off the Guy record he recorded in 1983 but it's about his father and what he stood for right you know, what would you say your father stood for my dad just was um, a good, really good dad that's what he was more than anything yeah. else he was just uh, he was a world champion dad he was funny and he was uh, he was there traffic controller because. He made the decision that he had a kid and a kid along the way, and he wanted to be a pilot. Mm. He was applied at the airlines, but the FAA was hiring controllers feverishly because there had been a, a mid-air collision over Grand Canyon in, in 1955. Yeah, I just, just heard about and that. I, I, hiked, I hiked the, wrong, the Grand Canyon a couple weeks ago, and yeah. I never knew about that. But that was, That's why our air yeah. traffic control, we suddenly saw, oh, we need, yeah. we need a real air traffic control. We didn't have one. We didn't have a real air traffic we only respond to crazy catastrophes in this country to make things yeah that's what better. we do that's what we do we don't want to spend money until something bad happens yeah did he ever see you play when you started getting a little oh yeah you know? no, he, was one of my, he was one of my biggest fans yeah without doubt he followed me all over Texas play before I went to Nashville and you know they, he lived in Tennessee the last several years of his life he, he my parents were my biggest fans when I was coming up your your debut record Guitar Town there's a black and white picture with the guitar over your back, but there's a string missing. Yeah. Why was that? An accident. We shot the. I broke a lot of strings in those days. The way <laughs> I played was really brutal. I've learned. I've actually my techniques better, so I don't break strings as much as I used to. But I broke a G string, which is what you. That's the easiest string to break on any yeah. guitar because it has more tension on it than any other string. Um, and I, we were shooting, and I, you know, I can't shoot photographs of me playing the guitar without actually playing the guitar and I broke a string at some point in the session so it ended up going on there with a with a with a with a broken string on it if you could have a festival that you threw yourself where would it be in the five artists that you would book dead or alive oh god where would it be um probably in Idaho because I like to fish there but um, fly fishing yeah but you know I'd, I'd settle for some place with the John Henry you don't have to be. settle this is this is a yeah. fantastical uh, festival probably, probably in Idaho and I'd probably have um, the Punch Brothers plus Lobos Tedeschi Trucks um, how many is that? <laughs> uh, four 
Okay. Then probably... Um, you could bring anyone back from the dead, who would it be? Well, NRBQ, with... The, with um, either either the, the... Well, the original lineup is, is pre-Big Al, even. Yeah. You know, so... The Big Al lineup, probably. Some some version of them was playing at a festival no, he's, did it's, in, in it's uh, Massachusetts. We're about to do... So, we're doing a show with him somewhere. It, it's Terry. He's doing... Or, or No, they're coming on the cruise. They're doing the Outlaw Cruise this year. Um, Terry Terry's gone in the band that he has now in RBQ. You know, Joey's Joey's you know doesn't leave Massachusetts much because he's been you know kind of struggling with he had some pretty intensive um, cancer treatment, and, yeah. so he can't really tour like that. So I think Joey finally let him do it. So he's I mean he's, uh, he's used his name. I look at a guy like you, and I'm thankful that you're here because there's a lot of guys who went through a lot of stuff like you did, and they're not here. They're gone, right? That's true. And, it's one of know, the things that can happen. You know, and it almost happened to me. It was very close. You so. know, and it's it's a blessing for younger artists like us to be able to see you do your thing and create records each year that are, you know, they're, and they're not like settling, right? You're going for shit that is just awesome. Yeah, I don't you know? understand why people think that people automatically settle. I think people do the best that they can, and, you know, I'm just kind of... I do it the way I was taught to do it, and I got because I didn't die. I got older and I got better, you know. So yeah. I think that's what happens, and that's what should happen anyway. And, and I don't. Um, I was uh, able to see Tom Petty two days before he died for the right, first time, yeah. and it was like in my mind, I was like, I, I I would not have gone to this concert if I wasn't given these tickets as a wedding present. They were so expensive, you know. And right. I was so thankful that I was able to see him and he, he seemed great. so and, happy and, and, out the, there. and the heartbreaking yeah. thing is he had been he had been doing better shows than yeah. he had done in a long time that year oh the band sounded incredible that was tough for everybody yeah do you see yourself in 10 years doing what god 10 years I'll be you know 74 years old the age my dad was when he died mm-hmm. um you know, I'm hopefully making music for theater in New York City and making a record in the summer times and going out to you know going out to tour in the summertime and support it. But um, you know, I just don't. I'll keep doing this till the end. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking with me, man. Appreciate it. Thanks. While I wish I could have cajoled Steve Earle to play his favorite new song in the back of his tour bus, there was just no time, unfortunately. So. Here is his favorite tune from his newest record, Guy, a Guy Clark classic called L.A. Freeway. Pack up all your dishes Make note of all good wishes Say goodbye to the landlord for me Some bitches always bored me Throw out some old L.A. papers Motorbox of vanilla wafers Adios to all this concrete Gonna give me some Duro backstreet If I can just get out of this L.A. freeway When I can kill the car I'll be down the road in a cloud of smoke to some land I ain't bought, bought, bought in this Yes, to you, old skinny Dennis only one I think I will miss I can hear your old basement singing Sweet low like a gap you're bringing 
Big thanks to Steve Earle and his team for uh, allowing me on the bus to talk to him for a little bit. You can go to steveearle.com for his music and his tour dates. And uh, his newest record is called Guy, featuring all the tastiest Guy Clark songs that you could muster. And uh, that's on New West Records. If you hop over to bluegrasssituation.com, you can see that in June there was a beautiful video creation of that song you just heard on our podcast, L.A. Freeway, shot in the Venice Canals in L.A. So check it out. It's beautiful. And guess what? Steve Earle and the Dukes, his band, will be all over the place this summer. They're going to be in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania in the next few days. And then they will be going up to Canada and Michigan and Wisconsin and I think Montana. They're going all over the place in that bus. So go buy a ticket, buy a record, do the right thing, support this music. I'll be on the road all over the place as well with my group Dust Bowl Revival. Uh, we'll be hopping around the Midwest this coming weekend, uh, playing Irish Fest in Chicago on the 12th of July, and then going up to uh, Minnesota, playing the Rolling River Music Fest outside Minneapolis, and then playing Madison, Wisconsin at the High Noon Saloon. And then we will be going uh, up to Seattle, playing the Tractor Tavern on the 21st of July. And finally, we will be playing some dates in New England, playing this crazy old tent uh, in Cape Cod called Payomet Arts. 
That will be July 25th, and then playing the 26th at Ossipee Music Festival in Maine, and then flying all the way to Montana to play the Red Ants Pants Music Fest outside Bozeman on the 28th. We'll see you guys out there. Maybe you've asked yourself, what can I do to really support a band that I care about and that makes music that I feel is important but maybe isn't universally recognized or financially supported? You know what? It sounds simple, but you tell a couple friends and you go to the show and you dance your ass off. That's it. That's all I'm asking you. Because you know what? As audience members, it's easy to be distracted these days. I do it myself. You're looking at your phone, you're going to get drinks, but you know what? If an artist feels like their music is going into the wilderness and nothing is coming back, it's hard to keep going. And just the response and the love that can be felt between an audience and a songwriter, it's the reason the songwriter keeps going, despite the sacrifice and the craziness of the travel and leaving their family for weeks at a time. It's worth it if everyone participates. That's all I'm asking. Dance your ass off a little more. It'll be worth it. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.